Okay, I want you all to imagine right now with me that you are wandering in a desert. And um, you're all by yourself, and you haven't had water for a long time. You're about to die of thirst. And as you're walking in a desert, you come upon this place with an old rusty pump and a sign on it. And here's what the sign says. Dear friend, this pump is all right as of June of 1932. I put a new sucker washer in it, and it should last for many years. But the washer dries out, and the pump has to be primed. So under the white rock to the north, I've buried a bottle of water out of the sun and corked up. There's enough water in the bottle to prime the pump, but not if you take a drink first. Pour about one-fourth of the water and let it soak the leather washer. Then pour the rest medium-fast and pump like crazy. You'll get water. The well has never run dry. But you have to have faith. Then, when you've pumped all the water you need, fill the bottle and put it back where you find it. So the next feller who travels this path. Signed, Desert Pete. Okay, what would you do? Uh, you could, of course, ignore the note because you think, hey, it's a hoax. Besides, 1932 is a long time ago. But if you're thirsty, as you are, and inquisitive, you'd, um, you'd probably uh, want to at least look for the bottle under the rock, wouldn't you? You'd start there. You'd go to, find, go to find that rock that he mentioned to the north of the pump, and sure enough, there's a bottle of water. Then what are you going to do? You find the bottle of water, it's got a cork on it, and it's full, and you are really thirsty. What you could do, of course, is drink the bottle of water. You could do that, and the result will be, of course, you'll die. Just you're postponing it a little bit. Or you could trust the note written by Desert Pete in 1932, almost 100 years ago. You trust that what he said is true. So you pour a little bit in to prime the leather washer, and then you pump like crazy. And sure enough, you get water and your life is saved. You see, the, the Bible is very much like Desert Pete's note. Did you think about that? You see, the, the Bible says that we're all very thirsty people walking in a desert. That's called life on planet Earth. And we are given an offer by God of free living water. But the only way we get this water is you have to follow the directions on the note. Now, the offer is for free and abundant water and the means by which you get that water is simple trust. You have to trust that the note is actually true. But there's an alternative. You can take that water thinking that that pump can never work, and you just drink it. And you assuage your thirst for a little while, and then you die. Or you could trust that the note is true and follow the directions and you find that you can just fill your 
every part of your body and all the bottles you're carrying with you with living water. That's our choice. You see, the key is simple trust. Do you trust the note or not? And for us as Christians or for people in this world, we have the same opportunity. I think every one of us would say as a human being, we're thirsty. Life doesn't turn out for anybody the way you really would like it to be. We're all thirsty and we're all going to die. And so uh, God has given us a love letter. He's done more than that. He actually sent his son here. But he gave us a letter saying, this is how you can get living water. But you've got to trust that what I said is true. Well, today we're going to come to a text of Scripture, which um, some have said, uh, this is Martin Luther wrote this. The chief point and the very central place of the epistle and the whole Bible. What we're about to look at today in the book of Romans, Martin Luther said, are the most important words in the entire Bible. That's pretty high praise. But there's a problem. It's really dense theologically. It's full of $20 words that most of us, when we hear these words, we go, uh-oh, I don't know what that means. That's some dumb pastor talk. And so you just turn off your mind and you don't listen anymore because it's really sounds like theological gobbledygook. But what Paul's going to tell us now in what is considered the greatest passage in the greatest book ever written it is dense. It's like eating fudge, but, and lots of fudge, and more fudge, until you get a sick stomach almost if you eat too much of it. We're going to eat theological fudge this morning, but, oh, it's good. And besides, believe it or not, it's actually nutritious, spiritually nutritious. So join me today as we look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. Now, remember, if you've been with us over the last four weeks, we have painted a picture that is exceedingly dismal. What the Apostle Paul does, starting in chapter 1, eight, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, is he tries to show with incredible detail that all human beings, every single one of us, no exceptions, falls incredibly short of God's righteousness. He begins with the typical Roman person or the typical American person and shows how we fall short of God's righteousness. And that's easy to show. But there are, of course, people who in, in America, as well as Rome 2,000 years ago, who lived very moral lives, and they were very proud of the fact that they followed the rules. They paid their taxes. They obeyed the law. And so then he shows how they fall incredibly short of the righteousness God expects. But there's a third category. There are those people who aren't among the, 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 the Joe six-pack, and they're not just moral people. They're religious people, Jewish people, who have the promises of God. They're chosen by God. They have the promised land. They have the temple. They have the law of God. Surely we are okay, aren't we? And Paul says, not a chance in the world. In fact, you're the worst off of all. Because your religion tends to make you think that you are righteous in God's sight, and you are not. So religion is, in many cases, the greatest danger of all. 
because you really think you don't need the righteousness of God. Unless they didn't get the point. What we dealt with last week is he quotes all of these passages from the Old Testament, the holy book of the Jewish people, the holy book of Christians. And he says, there's not one person righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks good. There's no one who is good, not even one. It makes you go, oh boy, how sad. But then the next words are some of the sweetest words in the whole Bible. And today we're going to look at the sweetest words in the Bible. And they begin with these incredible, incredible words. Some have said the two greatest words in the whole Bible, but now. In fact, I think that perhaps the greatest word in the whole Bible is the word but. Because the word, the Bible constantly says, this is our condition. This is what we have done. This is how we violated God's law. This is how we've slapped God in the face. This is how we fall short. But God. And so today, we're going to look at how God responds to we who have fallen short of all of his standards. Now, what he could do is give us a good swift kick in the rear end. What he should do is condemn us all. That's what he should do. That's what justice would demand. But he doesn't. What does he do? This is some of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. Romans 3.21 But now... A righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. A cosmic shift has occurred. This cosmic shift is initiated by God, not by us. A righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Oh, yeah, you say, oh, pastor, that's one of those theological words. No, it's not. It's very simple. Righteousness simply means right standing before God. Can you imagine trying to stand before God? Well, the Bible tells us what happens if a human being tries to stand before God. You get vaporized. That's what you do. We're vaporized if we ever tried to stand in the presence of God because he is holy. He's perfect, and we are remarkably far from that. So our only hope is that righteousness will come from God, not from us. That's the genius of Christianity. There's nothing on earth like it. Nothing. All other religions are about how we can make ourselves righteous to God, which is really dumb if you've ever tried it. I have. And if you've tried it too, you know it doesn't work very well. It's a, an abysmal failure. Or worse, it turns you into a liar and a hypocrite. You have to lie to yourself that you are good in the sight of God, and you know it's not true. But now a righteousness. God enables us to have right standing before him, but this righteousness comes from God. A righteousness from God, apart from law. It's not based on how well you keep the Ten Commandments. It's not based on how well you keep the moral code. It's not based on how well you keep your own code. Because the truth is, none of us even keep our own code. Much less God's code. 
Every one of us have standards and none of us keep our standards. Try your New Year's resolutions. How you doing, folks? They working out real well for you? None of us keep even our own standards at all. It's apart from law. Because if right standing before God depended on law, we're all doomed. Right standing apart from law has been made known. God now has communicated to us a a means of standing right before God. It's not based on how well we do. It's not based on our righteousness. It comes from God, but it's not new. This is not some um, plan B. This is not something God thought up after. It's not an afterthought. This has been the plan all along. Because the Old Testament clearly said the same thing. But it looked forward to what God was going to do. The Old Testament is crystal clear that people cannot fulfill the law of God. In fact, the purpose of the law of God is to show us we can't keep it. And also to show God's holy character. But God has always been consistent throughout all all of time with all human beings because none of us can keep the Mosaic law. None of us can keep the Noahic law. None of us can keep the natural law. None of us can keep our own laws. None of us can. And so all human beings should come to the place where we say, I give up. Can't do it. God says, oh, You just took a big step, and it's a good one, really good step. You've come to the place where you realize that your only hope to have right standing before God is that God would initiate something on your behalf that you could not provide for yourself. And that is precisely what he did. A righteousness comes from God. But he goes on. This is verses 22 to 23. This righteousness from God, there's the source again, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the source of righteousness, he repeats himself many, many times. The source of righteousness is not us, it's God. The divine means what God has done to provide this right standing has to do with Jesus. The human part of the equation has to do with faith. There's no difference. All human beings are on the same level, equal access to the righteousness of God. And we all need it because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Tony Evans said this, if two men are running to catch a plane... And one man is an hour late, while the other is one minute late. They both missed the flight. It doesn't matter if you are better than your neighbor. Your neighbor is not the standard. God is. And we all fall short. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, like people say, well, I'm, a, I'm better than so-and-so, or I'm not as good as so-and-so. It doesn't make a bit of difference. We all fall short. None of us make the plane. So whether you're one second late and they've closed the doors or you're five hours late, it doesn't make any difference. You see, there's no difference between us as human beings in terms of right standing before God, no matter how evil you are or how morally good you are. It makes no difference. 
because we all fall short. So what's God going to do? Well, what he's going to do has everything to do with Jesus. I think I've said before, and we're going to talk about it more as we get to Romans chapter 4 next week, but this word faith, it's a much, much, much misused term in our world today. Well, just the people say, well, just have faith. What? That's just, just have pumpkins. Just have garbanzo beans. It makes no more sense than just, let's just have garbanzo beans. That's a ridiculous statement. And so is just have faith. Faith is only as good as its object. You have to have faith in something. Why don't you put your faith in garbanzo beans? Or doorknobs? It doesn't make, that doesn't do a thing for you. Where is our faith centered? The object of our faith is a person, Jesus. Who is he? The Bible says he's fully God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. When he was here, they said, who are you? I am. That's God's name. And over and over again, he proved his deity. He is God who the word became flesh and lived among us. And we saw his glory as of God himself, full of grace and truth, fully God and fully man, who fully fulfilled the law, the only person who's ever lived. He said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to complete it. So every one of the 613 commandments you find in the law of Moses, the way they were intended by God, Jesus kept every one of them perfectly the only person who's ever lived. He was fully righteous. There was no sin in him. God made him, Paul said, who had no sin to become sin for us. That's who our faith is in. Our faith is in the fully God, fully human person who fulfilled God's law and was without sin and gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin. That's who he is. Francis Schaeffer, maybe you've heard his name, he's been dead a number of years now, a very well-known defender of the Christian faith and a philosopher. He He was asked this question, what would you do if you met a really modern man on a train and you had just one hour to talk with him about the gospel, the good news about Jesus, what would you do? This is how he answered. I've said over and over, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he is morally dead, and then I'd take 10 to 15 minutes to preach the gospel. I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get to the answer without having a man realize the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt, not just psychological guilt feelings in the presence of God. Interesting. And did you notice that's what the Apostle Paul did? Before he gets to the gospel with three chapters, he pounds in the fact, we need, we need help. And now he's going to say, here is the help. The help is centered in Jesus. But now the Apostle Paul is going to use three 
word pictures to describe what that help looks like in terms we can understand. Now, these three word pictures are going to come under the rubric of these three words. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. Now, that should put you to sleep real fast. Because most of us, when we hear pastors say words like that, we go, oh boy, there goes the theological mumbo-jumbo again. Actually, they're simplest words in the world. And if you, they're word pictures. They're pictures. They're easy. Paul's not, God's not trying to confuse us in his word. He's trying to communicate to us in simple terms that we can understand. The word justification is simply taken from the law courts. We'll get there. The word redemption is taken from the slave market. And back in Paul's day, they say as many as half of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. They know slave markets. And the third one is taken from the pagan temples. And, the, and those are, they were everywhere in the city of Rome and in every Roman city. You had temples to their gods. So Paul says, now I'm going to try to explain to you what salvation is all about. And I'm first going to take you to the law court. And then I'm going to take you to the slave market. And then I'm going to take you into a pagan temple. Let's go. And here's where he starts. Verse 24. And we are justified freely by his grace. Justified. What does that mean? Justified is simply a word from the law courts, which means a judge declares a defendant legally innocent. That's all it means. The judge declares the person who was, was brought before the courts to be innocent. The trial has gone forward, and the judge pronounces the sentence, not not guilty, no, innocent. It's a declaration is what it is. Now, how does God do this? It says freely. No one forced him into it. He does it because it's part of his, his nature. Picture this. You are a human being, and you stand before the bar of God's justice. And we've just had three chapters in which the Bible says that we're condemned. Every part of us is sinful. We are sinful. We're guilty, absolutely guilty. And so we stand before the bar of God's justice, legally guilty and justly condemned. There's the judge, and here we are standing, and we're so filthy guilty, it's unbelievable. And all of a sudden, out of the side, Jesus walks into the court. And he says, Judge, I have paid for every single thing that Tom Hovestall has done wrong. Every wrong behavior, every wrong thought, every wrong word, everything he should have done that he did not do, I paid for it all. The judge says, and I say, you did? I'll take it. It's my only hope. The judge goes, innocent. And so now we stand and you've probably heard this in Sunday school, maybe. Just as if I've never sinned. That's justification. I, as a Christian, can stand before a perfect God just as if 
I've never sinned. Wow. It, 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 it's not, it's, an, it's a declaration by God. Um, imagine this. The school year is just ending here, but let's imagine it just began. And the first day of class, you walk into class, and it's organic chemistry. That's the class. Very easy, they say. I've, heard the, or I've never taken organic chemistry, but I've heard it's very easy class. Everyone get, it does really well in it. You've never taken organic chemistry, obviously. Because if you had, it's one of the most difficult classes you can take in university. You walk into organic chemistry class the first day, and the professor goes to each person, gives you, tells you their name, and gives you your report card. A plus. A plus. You, you look at what? I just, this is my first day. Yes, the professor says, yes. There was this guy, his, he called himself Jesus. He walked in, and he asked if he could take all of my tests and write all of my papers. And his work on your behalf was unbelievable beyond belief. So you don't have to wor worry about your grade. You already got an A+. Plus. Just be grateful and learn. Have fun. In organic chemistry class, there's no fun there. That's, that's grace. Just as if I got an A+. Plus. It was already declared an A+, plus before I even took the class. That's what God has done. There, there is a story told, and a little bit of this is true, but most of it's false and made up about these two, these two friends in Australia who were the best of friends. They did everything together. They grew up together. They were in each other's houses constantly, the best of friends. But after they graduated from high school, they went to separate parts of the, of the country, far away, thousands of miles away, and they never saw each other again for many, many years. Well, it so happened one of them became a banker, and the other one went into law and became a judge. The banker unfortunately, started to embezzle some money and got caught. He had stolen a lot of money from the bank over which he was the president. And he was brought to a court, and it so happened, in the story, of course, it just so happened that the one who presided as judge was his friend from decades previous. And so the court trial went through with the jury, and the jury found the man to be guilty of embezzling money, and then the judge had to sentence him. The press picked up on the fact that these two had known each other many, many years previous, and they wondered, what will this judge do? And what the judge did was he threw the book at him. He gave him the harshest penalty allowed by law. You know, if you know anything about trials, there's always a range. It can be from 30 to 50 years. Well, he took the harshest possible penalty, which was an enormous fine he had to pay. And of course, the banker, the former banker, was just mortified to think his friend would do something like this to him. And the crowd was grumbling, thinking, whoa, he's mean to his friend. Until the judge wrapped his gavel. Order in the court. And he took off his black robe. And he walked around to the bench where his friend sat, downcast and angry. And he pulled out of his pocket his checkbook. And he wrote a check for a million dollars. 
He said, I've sold all my possessions, my house and everything I have. And I have just paid the fine that I assess to you. Give this to the clerk. You walk out of this court a free man. Was the judge just? Yes. He exacted the full penalty of the law. Was he merciful? Oh, yes. How? How can you be both just and merciful? You can't. Unless the judge paid the penalty. That's what Jesus has done. We couldn't pay the penalty. We were doomed. But God paid the penalty we deserved. That's called justification. We have right standing before God just as if we've never sinned because of what Jesus did for us. That's the first one, justification. The second term is called redemption. Redemption is a term taken from the slave markets of the time. As I said, most of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves, and it was not racial in the first century. You became a slave by being a prisoner of war, or you were born into a slave family, or usually by financial means. You went into debt, and you had to enslave yourself. Those were the three primary means of becoming a slave. And um, the Bible says that we, because of our sin, all of us are slaves. We're slaves to Satan. We're under the power of the, of the prince of the power of the air. We'd like to think we're free. Was it Bob Dylan says, you gotta serve somebody. You can serve the Lord, you can serve the devil, but you're gonna serve somebody. And all of us, because of our sin, are serving the devil. We're slaves. And this is what chapter 3, verse 24 says. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God stepped into our lives as slaves. He went into the slave market of sin. He paid what we were worth. And how much are you worth? trillion, $10,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000
He was particularly drawn to a young woman on the auction block, and he entered the bidding. As she looked at the white man bidding on her, she figured he was another white man going to buy her and abuse her. The bidding began, and Lincoln bid until he purchased her. He did not care about the cost. After he paid the auctioneer, he walked over to the woman and said, You're free. Free? What's that supposed to mean? She asked. It means you're free, Lincoln answered. Completely free. Does it mean I can do whatever I want to do? Yes, Lincoln said. You're free to do whatever you want to do. Does it mean I'm free to say whatever I want to say? Lincoln responded, yes, you're free to say whatever you want to say. Does freedom mean that I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, it means exactly that you can go wherever you want to go. With tears of joy and gratitude welling up in her eyes, she said, then I think I'll go with you. That's what God has done. Are we free? Yes. To say whatever we want to say? Yes. To do whatever we want to do, good, bad, or or ugly? Yes. If we have any sense, which we don't, but if we did, say, I want to go with you. After all, you're the one who gave me my freedom. Well, the third word is the word propitiation. And this word is taken, as I said, from the slave markets. And what it means is, um, you see, in, in throughout all the world, and I've lived in many, a number of countries, when people everywhere in the world throughout all of time, this is everybody in the world, when something bad happens to you, you believe that the gods are angry. And so what people throughout all of time in every known culture in the world have done is you try to do certain things to appease the gods. It's usually through the sacrifice, the sacrifice of a chicken or, or, or some other things to, to take away the wrath of the gods. And in Roman society, it was a very common thing. When the crops failed, people rushed to the pagan temples to try to get on the right side of the gods. Well, thankfully, we don't have to get on the right side of the god, but God now uses that word to try to explain another facet of what Jesus has done for us. Here's how the Bible reads it. This is Romans 3, 25 and 26. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement or a propitiation through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God's wrath is real. In fact, in Psalm, this is Psalm 711, it says, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. It's part of his character. He's not angry in the sense that we're angry. Wrath means he is unalterably opposed to evil. He has to be. It's part of his nature. If you were a witness to the Holocaust and you were not angry, you are not really a human being. You're an animal of some kind. It was so horrific. 
It has to bring up, you have to be unalterably opposed to what you saw because it is evil. God has to be that way. God's, someone wrote this, God's wrath is the inevitable and necessary reaction of absolute holiness to sin. He has to be that. And so when, what does our sin do to God? He is, his nature forces him to be against us. So what did he do? What did he do? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who took the wrath of God? Jesus. He who didn't even know sin, he became sin. He took our sin. He took the wrath of God. So it's gone. We don't have to try to appease God. It's gone. The wrath of God is gone toward us because Jesus took it. Wow. I, 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 do you sing here sometimes the song In Christ Alone? I, I suspect you've sung that, haven't you? Um, there's a line in that song that says, we're on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's the line. There's a very large denomination in America today that doesn't like that, that line. Because they, they say, well, well God does, isn't wrathful. Well, of course he's not angry in the human sense. Of course not. But they wrote a letter to the authors of that song saying, could we change that line? We don't like it. We'd like to change it. For when on, we're on the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Isn't that sweet? That's sweet. It is sweet. I like it. But the ones who wrote their song said, no, you can't change it. And so they dropped it out of their hymnal. Yeah, we don't like this idea of the wrath of God. But they don't realize how wonderful it is that the wrath of God has been satisfied. You see, God can't wink at sin. If he does, he's not just. And how does God remain consistent with his character if he winked at sin? He can't do it. But he doesn't have to because the wrath of God has been satisfied. Someone wrote this. This is James Denny. He wrote a book called The Death of Christ. He wrote this. Christ's death, we may paraphrase Romans 3.25, is an act in which God does justice to himself. In order to retain his holy, perfect character, God has to be just, but he also wants to justify the wicked. How can you be just and justify people who are wicked? How can you do that? Through Jesus Christ alone. It's the only way it can be done. It's, it's like the brave soldier this has happened in our country. When an enemy throws a hand grenade and he knows that that hand grenade is going to destroy many lives, jumps on the grenade. And it takes his life, but he saves the life of many others. Jesus jumped on the grenade for us. That's what he did. It's amazing. So what are the implications of that? 
What are the implications of this righteousness from God? Well, the first thing we found out already is that the fatal cancer of human unrighteousness has, be, has been eternally cured by the righteousness of Jesus. My cancer has been cured. And my much-deserved verdict of capital guilt has been paid in full by Jesus, resulting in God being able to say to me, you are innocent. And the enslaving power of sin has been broken by Christ's payment of our debt. And the righteous wrath of God has been assuaged by Christ's taking the wrath for us. And then in verse 27 and 28, it gives another implication. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. You see, the arrogance of religious achievement and moral goodness is excluded. It's all gone. We can never say that we have achieved something spiritually and we're morally good because it's all gone. Because our salvation is not dependent on our moral goodness or our achievements, but on Christ's righteousness alone. It would be like a swimmer who was saved from drowning and then he comes back and says, hey, yeah, I trusted the lifeguard. <laughs> That's dumb. No, you didn't. You're probably half dead. The lifeguard saved your life. You don't boast about having trusted the lifeguard. You boast about the skill and the goodness of the lifeguard. The next one is, Paul says this in verses 29 and 30. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So another implication is any sense of spiritual superiority is eliminated. And the last verse, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. The seventh implication is that the uncompromising demands of the law have been fulfilled by Jesus. So we are not under the law. We're under God's grace. Well, there's a story that was told, and I, I, I believe this one's true, of a man who was very, 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 very wealthy in England who bought a Rolls Royce. And he took that Rolls Royce through the channel and drove over into France. And while he was in France, he had engine problems with the Rolls Royce. And so um, he called on his cell phone in the Rolls-Royce company and said, you know, my car is broken down. I'm here in France. And they said, we'll take care of it. And within minutes, a helicopter flew in with a mechanic who got out and fixed the car. And he went on his way in his Rolls-Royce on to Paris. He said, oh, no. I paid a mint for this car. They're going to charge me so much more now to fly a helicopter. And he waited for the bill to come. And a bill never came. So he called Rolls-Royce one day and said, you know, I, my car broke down on the, on the road and uh, you sent a helicopter with a mechanic to fix it. How much is it going to cost me? And the person on the other hand said, we 
have no record that anyone has ever had car problems with a Rolls Royce. Thank you. <laughs> Can you believe God would say that? We have no record that Tom Hovestall did anything wrong. <laughs> what? That's right. Well, I end with a place that's very precious to me, Southern Africa. I, I lived there in the 1970s for three years. And I, I, I went to the south, uh, I went to the, actually the country of Swaziland. It's called, now called Eswatini. I went there in 1975, and I was there till 78. And if you know anything about South Africa, and we were only five miles from the South African border. That was during the bad years of apartheid. 1977, while I was there, was the worst year of apartheid. Steve Biko was killed, and many bad things happened. And those of us who lived in Southern Africa, though I was in a black-ruled country and very peaceful, we knew that when apartheid ends, as it would for sure happen, the bloodbath you're going to see is going to be incredible because the hatred was so great. Well, as you know, what happened, there was this man, his name was Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for 27 years. 18 years of those was on Robben Island. Robben Island is like Alcatraz. It's close to Cape Town, as Alcatraz is close to San Francisco. And when he came out of prison, he became the prime minister of South Africa. And he set up what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission with Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of the Anglican Church. They realized that the anger and the hatred and the evils, murders, rapes, so many crimes were committed under the apartheid regime that if the people tried to get even, there'd be so much bloodshed, it would be unbelievable in the country. They didn't want that. So this is what they decided to do. They decided that they would set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, whereby every one of the apartheid people who had committed these crimes, murder, rape, horrible crimes, if they came forward and would fully admit what they had done and face the wrath of the people to whose family they did it, they would be given complete amnesty by the state. And person after person in South Africa who had committed incredible crimes under apartheid came forward. And I, I, I even watched this morning, I was watching on, on YouTube, some of the people whose families just raking these people for what they had done. Then I saw one where a group of mothers, these wonderful mothers whose sons had been killed by apartheid people, they just nailed them and nailed them and nailed them. And then they had their own little meeting. They said, I speak for us all. We're Christians. In Christ's name, we forgive you. And these murderers and rapists walked out free. And the bloodbath never happened. Where did they get this from? Where did they get this idea from? It's obvious, though many people in the world have no clue. Straight from the Bible. That's what God has done with us. Here's his deal. If you come forward... And admit your crimes. If you try to hide them or blame shift them, it won't work. All bets are off. You come forward. And then you realize what Jesus Christ has done for you. He paid your penalty. He took on the law's demands. He 
faced the wrath of God. If you acknowledge that, you're free. Free indeed. That's called the gospel. Good news. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we are indeed a privileged, privileged, privileged people. Oh, and yet there's so many wonderful people all around us every day that don't have a clue about this good, good news. We've been pretty bad at helping them see it. We're not very good at that at all. I'm certainly not. Oh, Father, help us to be not just recipients of your good news, but ambassadors of it as well. Because it's really good. And our world really needs to hear about how much you love us in spite of who we, uh, in spite of what we've done and how valuable we are to you. Help us all to understand that and to live in light of who we are in Christ. So it's in his name we pray. Amen.